Welcome to the Center for the Performing Arts at Penn State. I'm Communications Director Laura Sullivan, and you're in tune with previews. Juilliard-trained pianist Jeffrey Siegel combines a virtuoso recital with insightful commentary in keyboard conversations. In the Power and Passion of Beethoven program, Siegel speaks about the music before performing each work. He also conducts a question-and-answer session with audience members after the concert. Previews editor John Mark Raffis talks with Siegel about the nature of a keyboard conversations concert and how the concept came about. Siegel also gives an enticing preview of each of the four pieces of music, including the Moonlight Sonata, scheduled for the performance. You, of course, have performed as a um, guest soloist with many of the world's great orchestras, but when you perform at Penn State, you're going to be doing something that you call keyboard conversations, the power and the passion of Beethoven. What's different about a keyboard conversation than a regular recital? Well, in many ways, it is uh, uh, exactly that, a solo piano performance, just as a, a formal recital would be, in that uh, each work on the program uh, will be performed in its entirety, just as one would expect to be the case at a formal solo piano recital. What we like to think of as being the plus is that prior to the performance of each composition on the program, I speak to the audience a bit about the music, uh, in non-technical language, and usually with some illustrations of the work that they are about to hear out of context, so that when uh, I sit down to play the piece straight through, just after talking about it, uh, hopefully the audience will feel that they are on the inside track, uh, that they're getting more out of the listening experience than might otherwise be the case. I would be the first one to defend the principle that it's not necessary to do this. On the other hand, Avid concert goers uh, have told me that uh, it makes their listening experience more meaningful than an earwash of sound. And, of course, uh, the keyboard conversations uh, reach out and make the listening experience for the non-concert goer much more inviting and, and accessible. So it makes uh, listening to music a, a more enriching experience this way. What originally motivated you to try this concept? We have to say that the guiding light for me was Leonard Bernstein's programs uh, that I attended, that I watched on television, when he would, before performing a piece, before conducting a, a symphony, for example, he would talk to the audience about the music in layman's terms, uh, illustrating uh, various points in the composition out of context, and then when he turned around to conduct uh, something even that we thought we knew, like the Beethoven Fifth Symphony, um, we were on the edge of our chair. It was much more active uh, listening. Uh, so that was the guiding light as a model. But in terms of the inspiration to do it, I would meet many concert goers at after-concert parties who would say to me, yes, I love music, and I go to concerts, and I have a good CD collection, but I wish my listening experience to great music could be more than just this pleasant earwash of sound. I've also met many people who will tell me, rather sheepishly, I know I'm missing something not to have Beethoven in my life, but I wish some musicians like you could make a more uh, accessible uh, introduction to the, to the to classical music for somebody like me who's not a concert goer but wants to give it a try and knows I'm missing something not to have 
Beethoven in my life. Can't you uh, m make the concert experience uh, uh, more more accessible for for someone like me? And 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 someone who once heard a keyboard conversation actually said it's it's like a gentle inoculation into the joys of listening to classical music, which I took as a great compliment. Our performing arts center each year partners with Penn State's Institute for the Arts and Humanities on a program they do called Moments of Change. Each year there's a different moment in, in history where both musically and in the arts and politics things took a, a different leap forward and this year they're doing the, the turn from the 18th to the 19th century and so your performance of the Moonlight Sonata is one of the pieces that will help to tell the, the multifaceted story of of that moment of change. I know you've described the Moonlight Sonata as um, one of Beethoven's more autobiographical pieces. Why is that? Uh, everything, in many ways, that Beethoven writes is autobiographical. What is so uh, startling about the Moonlight Sonata is that people tend to take it for granted. Oh, this well-known, gentle, you know, uh, it's like a, an old shoe. It's very popular, it's very well-known, and, and it should be. But really, it's a shocking, revolutionary masterpiece. Unusual even for Beethoven, and he knew it. He knew he was writing something very unusual here that indeed went against the grain of what was expected of a composer in the late 18th century and even beginning of the 19th century. He writes this, I think, in 1800, 1801. So it's a, it's a perfect transition piece, and it fits perfectly into what you've mentioned. In many ways, people had every right to have a certain expectation in those days of what a piano sonata was to be, the form and the design and the content. And this is a shocking break with precedent, and Beethoven knew it. Uh, he's not content, for example, to simply call this piano sonata number 14, which it is, but it's a sonata quasi una fantasia, sonata more like a fantasy. That's the title, and why, and I talk about that in the course of the program. It's also, getting back to your question, a very personal piece of music in that Beethoven was at this time beginning to realize that the hearing loss that he was experiencing was not imaginary, that it was real. And he was beginning to have to face up to the horrible truth that indeed uh, this hearing loss was real and what the consequences might be. So if one hears the first movement is brooding and contemplative, and one hears the finale, which should be lighthearted and gay, but is a, a, a rage in musical tone, uh, one might indeed make some attachment, if you will, to Beethoven's personal life. You mentioned that you'll also be performing another sonata, the Opus 81A. Of the 32 piano sonatas of Beethoven, there is only one of these nicknamed sonatas. There are many of them that have nicknames, but there's only one that received the nickname from Beethoven. And this one is the, is the sonata that will be on the second half of our program, the Les Adieux, or the Farewell Sonata. This is the only piece of music for the piano of Beethoven that has a very definite program and has a very definite source of information, of inspiration. Uh, a very important person in Beethoven's life had to leave Vienna in May of 1809. Who was this person? Why was Beethoven so deeply affected? Uh, and the sonata, in many ways, is, is the, the programmatic response musically to this. The first movement is entitled The Farewell. 
the second movement, the absence, and Beethoven wrote the second movement while this person was away, and the third movement is the absolutely jubilant return. And to really get what this piece is about, it, it really helps enormously to know who this person was, what was the relationship to Beethoven, why was Beethoven so deeply affected, and uh, what caused the person to leave town, and um, how Beethoven musicalizes this in tone. There are two other works on the program, I think, of great significance also. We have uh, Furalisa, uh, which is, uh, one of the, uh, is one of those uh, piano pieces that's known to every piano student and every parent of a piano student. Did Beethoven write this uh, hackneyed piece of music as a, a, a teaching piece for piano students? Uh, why didn't he publish the work? Because it was not published during his lifetime. And who was Elise? And I get into that in the course of the concert. And people who know this piece, and um, most people do, will find it shocking to find out uh, what's really behind it. And once you know, you hear it differently and you play it differently. And that'll be our program opener. And then also on the program is a melody that everybody knows, God Save the the King, or the Queen as the case may be, the British National Anthem. And Beethoven wrote a, a short set of variations on this tune. Uh, we know it as My Country Tis of In Britain, of course, it's, it's, uh, it has the God Save the Queen uh, appropriate title. Uh, God Save the King it was when Beethoven wrote the piece in 1803. Uh, what inspired him to write it? And uh, what does a composer do with a tune that seems so complete in itself? How much musical juice could be extracted from a tune that indeed seems complete in itself? And Beethoven takes us through seven different variations, all with a different mood, all based on this tune. And one marvels, when you, especially as everybody knows the tune, at uh, what the composer is able to do with it. That's great. And I didn't realize that he had done variations. That will be great fun. Tickets are on sale for Jeffrey Siegel's Keyboard Conversation, The Power and Passion of Beethoven, September 23, 2009, at Schwab Auditorium. Order online at www cpa.psu.edu or by phone at 1-800-ARTS-TIX. For the Center for the Performing Arts, I'm Laura Sullivan.